You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to part two of You Can't Say That, my conversation with writer-producer Christopher Oscar Pena of Promised Land on ABC Hulu. John Ortiz, by the way, who is not only an incredible actor, one of the kindest, most generous uh, people I've ever met. He is the number one on the call sheet. He comes on days that he's not working to make, to, to watch the young kids work because he knows that they look up to him and that they value his work, and he just wants to be there to, be, to say, I, I'm with you. You know, How many actors do you know who show up, not even on their own days, You know, barely show up on their own days? Um, but so John really reminds me of my father. I mean, their energies, what they look like. And I really, really wanted to write the, as far as I can take it, uh, fuck you white people monologue. And there is, there is a the story in my episode is that you find out a couple episodes uh, before that these bones are found on the vineyard. Somebody's dead body, right? And there's all these whispers about who the bones belong to. My episode is called The Whispers. And everybody is whispering that it was Joe, John, who killed this person. And uh, in the episode, there's a big party where all these older white men, who are his colleagues, right? The other CEOs, the other vineyard owners, the, the people around him, who are his friends. But you know how those white people talk to people of color. Okay, you know, and let me let me pause right here and tell you uh, the basis for the story. My dad a couple years ago called me and said, "I'm going to buy a new car. Should I buy a Toyota Corolla or a Jaguar?" I said, "Dad, 16 year old high school girls drive Corollas. You a corporate CEO? You fucking buy a Jaguar? What are you doing?" And he said, "Well, 
if I buy a Jaguar, I can't drive it to work. And I said, why not? He said, because I can't take it to my meetings with my white clients. And I was like, I don't understand. And he said, well, they, um, they'll think I'm making too much. They'll think I'm making more than them. So they won't, you know, they won't want to pay the prices. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't understand. And he's like, you don't, I'm like, they're middle management, you're a CEO. And he said, yeah, to them, so the janitor, right? So that has been in my brain for many years. And so the, la- the last play that I'm, uh, I'm going to have a production of this year uh, is about that moment for me. And so it's I, I took it to the TV show. And so I basically wrote this monologue where everybody's talking, whispering about Joe and his daughter, who I wrote sort of in this, in this episode as me. She basically was like, what are you doing? Like, why do you let people talk to you this way? And he says, it doesn't matter. Let them talk. Let the whites talk. It makes them feel better. And at the end of the day, it costs them millions because I take their money and I walk away. And they got their joke. They got their laugh. I got their business. So who wins? I win. And I'm like, but you shouldn't have to do that. They don't have to do that. How come the white people get to take the millions and stand tall and win? Why have we got to bend over? So then he gets on stage and the monologue is basically him looking at all the white people and saying, we're done bending our backs for you. Girl, it is, I have never been this proud. I wrote this monologue. I brought it to my boss. He loved it. He was like, let's try to do this. We thought the network would say no. They were all sort of nervous. They kept it in. Word for word, it is the entire monologue as they wrote. They never touched it. But tell me, come on, come on. There was some process. It wasn't that easy. Tell me. I, I really, really think. Well, but it was easy for my boss. I think the I think the network was nervous. I think, nervous about what? What was their nervousness? Well, because it, because I think here's here's why they were nervous, and here's why I think it was allowed. It is still a show that is broadcasting to Middle America. You know what I mean? So. Uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you sort of a little quick pivot. Apple, when they started buying, Apple TV started buying all these TV shows, everyone thought that they were going to make HBO quality shows. But if you look at their shows, they're all sort of like got cool ideas and a lot of money, great actors, but they're all kind of like CBS narrative, CBS writing. Because Apple is not interested in winning Emmys. They're not interested in awards. They're interested in selling hardware. They want to keep selling more iPads, right? So they quickly realized if we go too far, we're going to piss off middle America and we're going to lose sales. So, which is to say on my show, ABC still not trying to piss off their viewership, right? However, this is the big Latino show and they were trying to the Latinos. So I think at the end of the day, after the back and forth about this monologue, the reason it stayed in is it kind of felt like, well, the whites who are going to hate this monologue aren't watching this show anyway because they're racist. They're not trying to see these Latinos succeed. You know? So, I was, I mean, it's really proud. It's, he, he gets on stage, he looks at these white people, and he basically says to them, you believe that I'm a murderer because if you don't, then why am I so much better than you? Like, why do I have a better business? What am I money? Like, if you don't think I'm a murderer, then you're a fool because I've taken everything that you had. And it's, it's really like, uh, we're tired. We're tired. We're better than you. We're not going to make you feel like you're, we're not. We're not going to make ourselves smaller. We're not going to bend over. It's our time. The, and the last line is, and watching John do it, he says, we're not taking a slice this time. We're taking the whole fucking pie. And it is truly for me was the reason 
the dream of being on the show. Um, who knows if anybody will watch it? Who knows if people that need to watch it will watch it? But at least I know that I got to write it and put it out there. I'm gonna watch it. I can't, I can't wait to see it. So tell me the truth. You know, um, the one white person in the room, how did he get in the room and were they problem? She was actually the best and almost it's almost because he um, doesn't need to try. His name is Mark Wilding. He, I remember the first day, when I got the job, my agents knew he was in the room and I kept being like, who is this guy? And they're like, oh, he's amazing, he's amazing. And I walk in and he's this older guy and he just, um, basically the reason he was there is he has been, I want to say a 13, maybe 17 year veteran of Shonda Rhimes. So he was on private practice, he was on Scandal, he was on Grey's Anatomy, he ran Grey's for a few years, he ran Scandal for a few years, so he knows how to make ABC TV. So he came into that room to basically help my boss steer the ship. And I think, you know, honestly, he could have been like, I'm the baddest white guy who's got the best career in this room. But I honestly think he didn't care. He's like, I could have any show I want. I respect the show. I value what you're saying. I think it's important. So he was just such a good, good guy. Uh, but also, this motherfucker has so much money. There was one day we all joked about going to the vineyard in Sonoma uh, for the weekend. And he said, and we were like looking up, uh, you know, hotel rooms. And he said he would pay for everybody's rooms. And, and I look on the, in the, on the websites, every hotel that weekend, because it was like high season, was $2,000 a night. And you have to remember, there's six or seven of us plus the assistants. So we're talking about 40 grand for the weekend. And we're like, Mark, Mark, hi, you can't do that. And he's like, no, we'll do it. We're like, Mark, it's $40,000. And he goes, trust me, when you have 17 years of broadcast money like I do, it's a drop in the bucket. And I want to take you guys out. And literally every time we take us to dinner, he pulls out money for our, for our, to, to tip the valet. He's just like a good, he's a good guy. Wait a minute. Now I got to understand something. Because you would know this and I don't know anything about it. So someone who has that kind of money... Why is he writing on a show? What's the point for him? I don't think he needs to. I think, think? Because it's, yeah, I think he really loves it. I think it's fun. And I think, I will say in our case, so we are on the show, most of the writers are on the show five days a week. You know, he, he when he got offered the show, he told my boss he had plans to go to London and then a bunch of other places. So he has a cool consulting job. He comes in three times a week and he gets paid a shit ton of money and it's a good time. Oh, so he doesn't, he's not in the room with you all every day. No, he's not in the room all, all the time, but he, I mean, he's, he's certainly like a part of the room. He just comes in half the time, you know, but he wrote, he wrote an episode, actually his episode airs next. Um, and he's really, really, really smart. And I think truly, and to your question, he has the money. He's there because he likes writing and being around other writers and he believes in the show. And it was great. He, he, he was the one who never once said something racist or stupid, and he knew when it was his time to shut up and listen and ask questions, and he was great. Wow. Because, yeah. you know, I heard a lot of things about the, um, what's that, the Watchmen room, where they had all these different people of color, uh, and they had the two white people, and that it was just a nightmare. Like, the white people would just be like, I don't understand that. Like they didn't ever get anything that the people of color were saying about how characters should be or what people's lives were like, and that it was really a nightmare of a room. I 100% have heard that from all those same writers, uh, and yet, you know, the white 
the white creator showrunner got all his awards, you know? Uh, he gets to do whatever he wants. He's getting uh, awarded I, having been in that room and survived. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. I, I, you know, in my room, when I was in this room, so I have a big gay narrative, a gay story in my, in my episode, and there was this moment, um, a sex moment, actually, and I turned it to my boss, and he said, I don't really understand this moment yet, but I don't think I'm the one who's, who, like, I don't think that I have, this is what Hollywood doesn't know. Hollywood thinks that they don't understand something, it's bad. They don't understand that not everything is for them, right? So instead of saying, I don't get it because it's not for me, they assume it should be for them. So I wrote this thing and my boss was like, I don't really get it, but I trust that you know what you're doing. And we went through, the network said that, the room said that, people were like, we like it, we don't really get it, but we like it. And then it got to the actor and the first day on set, in front of everybody, he came up to me and he said, thank you for writing this, I totally understand it. And everyone realized it was like specific gay trauma that only the gays really knew. And all those people could have said stop, which most of them would have, but thank God our boss was like, you know, we're gonna keep going and we're gonna push to, to be honest. Speaking of that, I wanna talk about a show that you really loved and I didn't get. And I love the creator. It, he's brilliant and wonderful. And um, we're talking about Michael R. Jackson, Pulitzer Prize winner, now on Broadway with A Strange Loop. I know that and you wept. It was so powerful for you. And I was like, I guess I'm too old, but this is just too much for me. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't think the music was good and the T-Board Town, but I was like, look, this on stage, like there's someone calling someone a nigger and fucking them. I, 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 I not for, not on the stage. And then we back to the trauma of Jelly's Last Jam when Gregory Hines had wanted to do anal sex and have me suck his dick and I was like, uh, I, I don't think that's musical theater. And like, that's where I went. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, why can't we push it to be musical theater? I mean- Well, it is musical theater. It's Broadway now. I mean, but truly like, listen, I, it's it's not only that, that moment, that moment on stage where he is on his knees getting fucked by that white man doing drugs in like Queens or something. I, Listen, he's not the only one who's been there, is what I'll say. And I just sat there and I was like, this show, but here's the other thing that I'll say. That show is not just about being black. It's about being black, being queer, and being fat, really. I think that's something that people didn't really talk about. And there's a reason that that character is cast the way he's cast, right? He didn't cast a Twiggy black actor, you know? He, he cast a big black actor. And I think... Uh, talking about oppression and how Latinos are oppressed and we turn on each other and other people of color when we rise, right? Gay people have been oppressed by everyone and they are the most oppressive force within our community. If you are not a fucking skinny white boy with abs, you might as well be dead. And not only dead, the, the, you are hated. You are you are looked at as, as the bottom of the barrel, right? So that's who that person is. That person has been and to be black, right? I mean, I, I love the way he called out Terrell when he, uh, you know, when he talked about Moonlight, you know? I love, I was like, yes, it's not beautiful, you know? Terrell is a fucking six foot four ballet athlete, you know? You think you got it hard in the gay world? You might have it hard as a, you might have it hard as a black man, you know? But you still got a fucking 12 pack out here. Um, and so I think, what I, I'd never seen that 
um, specific of a moment and a story of, you know, it's like, and truly what it was sad is, look, I'm, I have a really attractive boyfriend, smart, talented, sweet. Um, I've had a lot of, I've dated a lot of attractive, smart, sweet people. But there's a point in your life when you really do feel like you don't deserve anything. You know, that the best you can do is a drugged out married man in Queens. And so watching that happen and for him to put that on stage was so painful because it was so true. And I think, is it musical theater? Should it be on stage? I don't know. What I, what I liked is that, like, it, it gave people a glimpse into something that maybe they don't know. Or... Yes. No, I mean, but I was thinking about it in the thing of, like, a moment, like, it isn't that I didn't understand it because I love the movie Stranger by the Lake. You know that movie, right? The Frenchman. I mean, I, I love Stranger by the Lake, but it was just, like, it was so naked. It was just, it was a level of naked that I just was like, ah, ah. I love I, the fact that Tanya Pinkins gets scandalized. That is that is a moment. Uh, you know, I, I watch Euphoria. I love it. I think it's a separate thing. That shit's just sexy and fucked up. But what I will say is that Euphoria feels like it's trying to push the buttons. It's trying to do a thing, right? When I sat at a strange loop, I think the moment that, that you and I maybe stop at is that, I don't know if you thought it was trying to, but it was a lot, right? For me, it just felt like, it felt so real that it didn't feel like anybody was trying to push a boundary. And I think that's what, how we felt, experienced it differently, you know? I think it was like my trauma. Like if I had seen that at Joe's Pub, I would have been like, yes! But it was like, this is the theater. Yeah. We don't do that in the theater. Well, what about <laughs> you know? Slave Play? And you know, I love Slave Play. I, I thought Slave Play was like my life story. <laughs> well, what about the end of that play? See, I mean, did we do that in the theater? You know, for me, I would like to direct that play because the end did not get to where I needed it to go. Like I had the vision of where that end needed to go. And so I was living in how I needed it to go because I knew, and I actually talked to Jeremy about that. Like, what is the end? And he said, I really left that ending open that any, any director, any actor can do what they want. So I was like, okay. Cause I know how I would, would make the end of that play. But I think, well, I think that's a cheat. I think it's a cop out because as a writer, you need to know what your ending is. Like I feel, I feel like I'm very collaborative, and I am like design acting. Like I'm very open, but like that kind of ending, if you are, if you you can be open and so clear, and if that's not the ending that he wrote, then that's on him, you know, because there is something being said or questioned, and a director needs to get there with you, especially in the world premiere. So if that ending didn't work for you, it's a failure on the director's part. It's also a failure on the writer's part. No, no, no. I think he was open to many interpretations. Like for me, it could have pushed way further. Like for me, what that play was, that ending was tame. I see. I see. You want the strange loop ending? <laughs> yes. Yes. We should go see it together when he comes back with the new cast. I hear there's a new lead, which I'm very curious about. A new lead man? Yeah. It's okay. not Larry Owens. It's somebody else. Well, you know, what was so great about him in that part was he was so pathetic. Yeah. And it was perfect. It was perfect. Have you met um, Michael R. Jackson? Yeah, I know Michael R. Jackson. So I don't know him. Okay, so here's the other thing. I on the podcast. I love him. He's brilliant. So I don't know him, and obviously I'm a fan, right? Okay. Huge fan. 
But at one point, I walked in the lobby and I saw him, and I saw him in his like jean shorts and his like he like his shirt was tucked in, he had a backpack on, and I was just like, "Oh, boo! We can't be doing this no more. Like we're famous now. We got to put on some nice pants. Like what are you doing?" And, and it's funny because look at me being judgmental, right? But I was like, "Oh, like this is not, you know, like he's still." You're doing the gay judgment thing on him. Yeah, I'm putting the gay judgment on him. But it was interesting because I don't know if it's. I mean, he's writing about it, so obviously he he knows what like he's experiencing, you know. But it's like, is he so? Is he just like I'm brilliant? I don't give a fuck. I'm gonna keep living, or you know, like. I, but I I was really surprised when I saw him. I was like, oh, he is, you know, not trying to be more than any than he is. He is a very well-adjusted human being. Yeah. He, you know, you should listen to my podcast with him because he grew up with, I think his dad was a cop oh. and his parents were very accepting of him. So he grew up around a lot of police officers and he just has this really unique perspective for a black gay man. Yeah, 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 yeah. The life that he's lived. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see his next show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What else are you excited about or seeing or not excited about? Well, you know, you don't know that I have been living down in Panama. Oh, wait. Before you... Sorry. I want to say to you also, you know I saw every episode of Emmett Till. Uh, so, so... I mean, you can't call it beautiful, right? It's so painful. But what a, like, stunning portrayal of those women... And I mean, I knew that story. I was, I obviously knew that story and I still watched it. I just, you know, knowing what it was going to be like. Um, and I was glad that, you know, I will say this to you. I thought everyone was brilliant. And I, and I was in the writer's room. It was on ABC. And I came to the room one day and I said, it's really unfortunate that nobody's going to watch that show because it's so extraordinary. And they were like, Oh, what's the viewership on it? And I went home and you guys actually had a huge viewership. And I only say that because it's like, it's so rare that people will show up for a show that is that hard to watch. Um, yeah. I mean, so congratulations to you. It was really fantastic, you know. Uh, and sh- yeah, but, you know, and I also was like, maybe the end will be different this time. And of course it never is, right? You, you keep hoping that you like forget something, but. Well, you know, there's a, a novel that I read that kind of gives a different ending to Emmett Till. Uh, it was, it's a very good novel. It's a very strange novel. But, yeah, I mean, there are those stories where that's the beauty of being a writer, that you can make the world anything you want it to be. I think that as I've gotten older, I'm getting a little more compassionate about weakness as I, you know, am getting weaker and seeing my body falling apart and 
you know, in the last chapter of my life. So I'm a lot more compassionate for weak things. So what do you ultimately want? I mean, you're super, I, it, this is something I, I think my guests would be um, interested in. I know a little bit about it because I have some friends who are writer producers. So my understanding, and you straighten me out, writers, the, the, the head writer creator always gets paid on every episode, but writers get to write an episode and they get their weekly salary, but the, the, the episode fee goes to the head people. But when you become in the different kinds of producers, you now get more. So explain to us where you are in the hierarchy of, of, of writing. Basically, the, the simplest way to do it is that there's lower level writers and, and upper level writers and lower level writers get paid weekly and then uh, they get paid by by their episodes. And upper level writers kind of have like a minimum, so you get paid way more. And then when you write episodes, you get paid even more. Uh, but the, the reason you get paid more is you have the title producer or producing in your in your title. The difference is that, and, and this doesn't mean that they don't all do it because a lot of younger writers do, but the idea is that younger writers do not have experience on set yet. So when, you know, you're, you've been on set, right? You're on set. Let's say, let's say you have, there's two scenes left and the day's gone and it is up to that writer to decide we can only shoot one of these scenes. Which one do you want to pick, right? This is, this is like literally like a hundred thousand dollar problem. And that means that when you turn your episode in, does your episode work with that? Do you have the information you need? Can you cut that scene and move the lines you need to another episode, right? It's hard when you're on your first year to make that decision in front of 100 people knowing you could piss off your boss to the network and fuck up, right? So the idea is that once you're at the producing level, you have the experience to be able to make those decisions and you're, and you're on set really making those calls. So that's why you get more money, truly. Um, I have been lucky the last three years. I've sold a lot of TV shows. I developed a show with Netflix, one with Apple. Uh, I just turned in a show to ABC. Um, the hope now is truly that I'll just have my own show. And just, just, just go back a little bit to race a little bit. One of the things that I have noticed, even on Promised Land, which I've talked about and I love Promised Land, is that Promised Land is a Latino show, right? Insecure was the black show. Looking was the gay show. And I keep kind of being like, like, why, why can't there be, uh, why, like, Vita was all Latinos. I really am excited and believe in my friends who are making Latino shows or black shows and only hiring black and Latino artists. That's great because they've been marginalized forever. But for me, it's like, I grew up in San Jose. My first boyfriend is Filipino. My best friend was Hawaiian. You know, like, where, like, why don't we have those things? So the pilot that I just turned in that got killed, uh, I, I basically sold, uh, big Little Lies for People of Color. So I created it with my friend who's a black woman. She's a black woman in her 50s, who, um, 40s, sorry, 40s, who had started her career as a writer and director on The Wire. She is a black woman married to a white man. She has a trans daughter. And she and I are very, 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 very close. We met on Motherland. We worked on Motherland together. And so we were like, we're going to make shit together. And so we sold this show um, about, which is Big Little Lies for People of Color, because it's about a rich community. But the community is mostly people of color. So the main family was a black, white family that really represented her family. It was an upstart Latino family with a gay son that was my family. Then you had like a Japanese cop. Then you had the white family. Because we were like, it's so rare that our narratives are put together 
and that we are front and center. And if we aren't together, it's still the white family, white creator, white director, and we're their friends, right? In this case, the two leads were a black woman and a Latina woman, and then everyone else was around them. And so what I'm really striving for is to create shows where nobody can see the black show or the Latina show or the Asian show, and yet it's not the white show. Where did it get killed? So, I mean, listen, I don't, I don't have any, I mean, people be lying all the time, supposedly. So, as you know, so Promised Land is being moved from ABC just onto Hulu. And what we have, what people don't know about broadcast is most broadcast TV these days is reality shows. And um, launching a serialized hour show like Promised Land is nearly impossible because people watch on their own time on streaming. And so the only things that are succeeding are procedurals because you can watch them, you know, you don't have to, you can skip seven and still get to eight, right? Or half hour comedies because you can watch the first three, skip four, five, see six. So you, the viewership stays up. Whereas if you're watching Promised Land or, you know, another show like that, if you miss two episodes, you're fucked. So people, the real feeling in, in Hollywood right now is that we're in the last five years of broadcast TV being a place that you watch uh, serialized shows. It's basically going to be just reality shows in the next few years. Um, so all the stuff that we really care about is going to be on streaming or cable. Uh, and that's going to be Bachelor and Football for the rest of the time. You know? And a show like Grace, for instance, because, you know, Grace had their station 19 or whatever spinoff. People were like, why does that work? And you're like, well, Grace had 18 years of viewership. So when it was spun off, those viewers went with that show, right? Any new show doesn't have 18 years of viewership. So that's the complicated time about making shows now. Thank you so much, Chris. And everybody watch Promised Land. And let's hope that some of these other shows that uh, Chris has sold were pitched so that the next time I'm talking to Chris, he will be the showrunner on, I guess it's going to be a series on a streamer where it'll be a limited series or something like that, because he said that's where the business is going. So you are listening to Tanya Pinkins on You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. I was speaking with Chris Pena, the supervising producer and one of the writers on Promised Land, which is on ABC Hulu. for listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins, and You Can't Say That is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seal, with music by Kat Dale. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast highly wherever you stream. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Tanya Pinkins. And to learn more, visit bpn.fm forward slash YCST. Stay safe. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.